the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Eight minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. And yes, Clark had to walk down the hall and get me running just a smidge late. Well, we're glad to have you with you, with us. <laughs> James Blend is producer of today's program, Clark Hilton engineer and keeper for today's program. We're going to be talking with Steve Brown. He is the author of Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable. He'll join us uh, in this first hour. And in the second hour, we'll uh, hear from Douglas Estes, author of Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Tech. In the meantime, we're going to give away our final pair of tickets to C.S. Lewis on stage, um, the most reluctant convert, and we'll be doing that in the uh, next segment. So heads up on that. Well, today, of course, was the Mueller testimony, the much anticipated Mueller testimony. We'll talk a little bit about that in just a few moments. But a few of the headlines, all eyes were focused on former special counsel Robert Mueller when he testified today on Capitol Hill about his investigation on Russia's interference in the 2016 election and how he came to the findings in his report. Mueller um, was questioned by lawmakers for about four hours. He was scheduled to testify publicly before the House Judiciary Committee for at least two, and then the House Intelligence Committee another two hours. Uh, The House Judiciary Committee decided to allow Aaron Zebley, Mueller's top aide, to accompany him during his testimony, a move the president blasted as unfair, but Mr. Um, Zebley did not open his mouth during the uh, uh, the hearing. If anyone was looking for a West Wing made for TV moment at Mueller's hearing, um, they would have been disappointed. The Justice Department um, told Mueller that he must remain within the boundaries of the public redacted version of his report. And we learned later yesterday or late yesterday that uh, Mueller had actually requested the Department of Justice to give him that directive. So it was kind of a convoluted Uh, Requests that was fulfilled by the Department of Justice. The limitations hamstrung both Democrats who were seeking to damage Trump in any way that hurts his chance of reelection in 2020 and Republicans who were seeking to defend the president and show that Russian the uh, investigation was a politically motivated witch hunt. Former U.S. Representative Trey Gowdy, now a Fox News contributor, predicted uh, that the hearing today would not stray at all from the report um, and that he wouldn't want to. uh, account for what he didn't bother exploring in his investigation. And that was a pretty accurate um, response to what happened today in that hearing. Again, more on that in just a few moments. Uh, In speculating about the hearing, there were lots of questions that uh, were anticipated that may or may not have been asked. We'll look at what uh, some of the highlights were again in just a few moments. Well, big tech is in the crosshairs once again in a shot across the bow of online titans like Facebook, Google and Amazon. The Justice Department announced yesterday it's opened a wide ranging antitrust investigation of big technology companies and whether their online platforms have hurt competition, suppressed innovation or otherwise harmed consumers. The president has relentlessly criticized the big tech companies for 
Uh, by name in recent months, he and other top Republicans frequently assert that these companies, Facebook, Google, and others, are biased against him and conservative politicians. And high school football players in Idaho surprised a nine-year-old boy with autism by coming to his birthday party after only one classmate accepted his invitation. There was video taken uh, by Lindsay Burris Larson at last month's party showing the Napa high school players giving her son Christian a football as a gift and playing with him. Lindsay Larson explained on Facebook in May that she passed out invitations uh, to Christian's class of 25 students, but only one girl responded that she would come. In another Facebook post days later, um, she said that her friend reached out to Napa high school football coach Dan Holtry after reading the first post about Christian's birthday party. Before I knew it, the coach was reaching out to her, asking if he could come to the party with some of his best players, um, adding that uh, she happily accepted the coach's offer, and the rest is now history. That boy had the birthday of his life. Well, the Senate voted to confirm the president's pick to lead the Department of Defense, Mark Esper. The Senate overwhelmingly voted 90 to 8 to confirm him. The Pentagon has been without a Senate-confirmed leader since December, when former Secretary James Mattis stepped down following Mr. Trump's decision to withdraw troops from Syria. And the House uh, overwhelmingly approved a bipartisan resolution Tuesday opposing an international effort to boycott Israel as Democrats try to tamp down increasingly heated political rhetoric over differences with the longtime U.S. ally. The resolution passed on a vote of 398 to 17. Representatives Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were among the 16 Democrats who voted against the resolution, which condemned the effort um, to boycott Israel. And President Trump uh, filed a lawsuit seeking to prevent the House Ways and Means Committee from obtaining his state tax returns through a newly passed New York law. The president's lawyer said the state law was nothing more than an effort to get information about his personal finances to embarrass him politically. And Senator Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign has been hit with an unfair labor practice complaint alleging illegal employee interrogation and retaliation against staffers. The July 19th complaint to the National Labor Relations Board filed by an unnamed individual in Indiana was posted to the agency's website late um, January 22nd. It comes as tense negotiations between the Sanders campaign and the union representing staffers recently boiled over publicly. And conservative watchdog group Judicial Watch filed a complaint with the House House of Representatives Ethics Office asking for an investigation into possible crimes committed by Minnesota Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar. The possible crimes include perjury, immigration fraud, marriage fraud, state and federal fraud and federal student loan fraud, according to the complaint filed yesterday by Judicial Watch's Tom Fitton. And the Senate gave final legislative approval on Tuesday to a bill ensuring that a victim's compensation fund related to the 9-11 attacks never runs out of money. The 97-2 vote sends the bill to President Donald Trump, who is expected to sign it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our next segment, we're going to give away our final pair of tickets to C.S. Lewis on stage, The Most Reluctant Convert. That's for the performance on Friday, August the 2nd at the Newmark Theater on Broadway here in Portland. That's coming up in just a few moments. Also coming up in our following segment, we'll talk with Steve Brown, author of Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We want to give away our final pair of tickets to C.S. Lewis on stage, The Most Reluctant Convert. That show uh, is on Friday and Saturday, August 2nd and 3rd. The tickets we're giving away today are for Friday's performance, 8 o'clock p.m. at the Newmark Theater. And that's August 2nd, Friday at 8 p.m. at the Newmark Theater. We want to give away this pair of tickets uh, to our Fourth caller, and that uh, number is 800-845-2162. 1-800-845-2162. Fourth caller, C.S. Lewis on stage, the most reluctant convert, adapted exclusively from his writings and uh, his journey from atheism to becoming one of the most vibrant and influential Christian intellectuals of the twenty-first or the 20th century. Uh, he wrote more than 30 books that have sold more than 200 million copies, making him arguably uh, that... Um, uh, most religious, uh, influential religious writer of the past century. So that's coming up, and hope to see you there. If you don't win the tickets, you should know there are performances on both Friday and Saturday. Friday's performance is at 8 o'clock p.m. at the Newmark Theater, and on Saturday that performance is at 4 o'clock p.m. Uh, you can check that out. Tickets are still available. Go to cslewisonstage.com, cslewisonstage.com. Hope to see you there. I'll be at the... Uh, Saturday, 4 o'clock performance. Continuing to look at some of the, uh, the day's headlines, Democratic 2020 presidential candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren yesterday released details about her plan to cancel approximately $640 million in student loan debt for millions of Americans. First unveiled in April, the Student Loan Debt Relief Act would cancel up to $50,000 in student loan debt for every household with a gross income less than $100,000, roughly 42 million Americans or about three out of four borrowers. And former Vice President Joe Biden on Tuesday released a sweeping plan to reform the U.S. criminal justice system in an effort to quiet criticism of his role in tightening crime laws decades ago as a senator, which critics say contribute to mass incarceration. Uh, Biden's plan involves reducing incarceration um, Uh, eliminating race, gender and income based disparities in the justice system and refocusing the system on redemption and rehabilitation. Or, as Reason put it, Joe Biden's new criminal justice, and that's Reason magazine, criminal justice platform calls for eliminating harsh policies sponsored by Joe Biden. Well, after hitting a new high last month, mentions of immigration as the most important problems facing the U.S. increased further to 27 percent this month. Since Gallup began regularly recording mentions of the issue in 1993, immigration has been cited by an average of 6 percent of Americans, though it has been higher in recent years. And though many Americans have never heard of Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, uh, Ayana Presley and Rashida Tlaib, a CBS News poll released this week, shows that those who are familiar with them don't tend to view them favorably. Ocasio-Cortez has the highest favorable rating at 23 percent, followed by Omar at 19 percent, Tlaib at 18 percent and Presley at 17 percent, according to USA Today. And more than 2,000 migrants who were in the United States illegally were targeted in widely publicized raids that unfolded across the country last week. But figures the government provided to The New York Times on Monday show that just 35 people were detained in that operation. And Mexico set a new record for homicides in the first half of the year as the number of murders grew 
by 5.3% compared to the same period in 2018, fueled partly by cartel and gang violence in several states. Mexico saw 3,080 killings in June, an increase of over 8% from the same month a year ago, according to official figures. The country of almost 125 million now sees as many as 100 killings per day nationwide. The 17,608 killings in the first half of 2019 is the most since comparable records began being uh, kept in 1997, including the peak year of Mexico's drug war in 2011. On this day in history, 1858, Republican senatorial candidate Abraham Lincoln formally challenges Democrat Stephen A. Douglas to a series of political debates. The results would be seven face-to-face encounters, in-depth face-to-face real debates between two candidates. I don't think we could probably take that today. We'd have to whip out our phones and start looking at memes of something. And on this day in history, 1866, Tennessee becomes the first state to be readmitted to the Union after the Civil War. In 1959, on this day, during a visit to Moscow, Vice President Richard Nixon engages in his famous kitchen debate with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. On this day in 1969, the Apollo 11 astronauts, two of whom had been the first men to set foot on the moon, splashed down safely in the Pacific. It was an amazing feat. And on this day in 1974, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously rules that President Richard Nixon has to turn over subpoenaed White House tape recordings to the Watergate special prosecutor. And the the rest, of course, is history. Some of the headlines from the Mueller um, uh, hearings uh, earlier today, Jim Jordan grills Mueller during tense hearing. Bill Barr will get to the bottom of false accusations. GOP Representative Gomer tear, uh, tears into Mueller over Peter Strzok's length of Russia probe. You perpetuated injustice. Devin Nunez compares Russian conspiracy to speculation about Loch Ness monster. Anti-Trump Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe calls Mueller hearing disaster that helped the president. ABC News correspondent says impeachment over after Mueller testimony. Trey Gowdy, uh, Democrats going all in to try to find a way to use obstruction to impeach Trump and Tom Dupree. Mueller hearing surprisingly halting and a huge disappointment for Dems. Well, few voters uh, expect former special counsel Robert Mueller's uh, congressional testimony will make a difference to their views of the president. You either like him or you don't. In watching the hearings, you either accepted what one side was emphasizing or the other. The latest Fox News poll conducted Sunday through Tuesday finds nearly half, 49 percent, say there is no chance at all that something Mueller says on Capitol Hill Wednesday could change how they feel about Trump. Now, that may be in part because Mueller already announced that he wasn't going to go beyond the Mueller report. Another 23 percent said there is only a small chance their views could change. About one in five seem movable, as they say they are. uh, There is a strong eight percent or somewhat uh, some chance, 11 percent. The testimony will change their mind. Republicans, 52 percent. Democrats, 49 percent are more likely than independents at 38 percent to say there is zero chance. Something in Mueller's remarks will change their feelings about Trump. Support for impeaching Trump and removing him from office has stayed between 39 to 43 percent since June of 2018. Currently, 42 percent of voters support that approach. Another 5 percent want him impeached but not removed, while 45 percent oppose impeaching impeachment altogether. Now, you'll recall in the case of Bill Clinton, he was impeached but not removed. So those who suggest they would support that are uh, reflecting back on what happened under that administration. Well, Robert Mueller kicked off his testimony before House Intelligence Committee members this afternoon by issuing a clarification of something he said during a morning hearing 
about his decision-making process when it came to the question of whether the president committed obstruction of justice. He raised eyebrows during an exchange with House Judiciary Committee uh, member Representative Ted Liu of uh, California. The reason that you did not indict the president is because of the OLC opinion that you cannot indict a sitting president, correct, he asked, referring to the Office of Legal Counsel's long-held position against charging a president while they are in office. Correct, Mueller replied. Well, that gave the impression that if it were not for the OLC opinion, Mueller would have indicted the president. So in the afternoon, Mueller was quick to say that is not what he was trying to say at all. And he said this, I want to add one correction to my testimony this morning. I want to go back to one thing that was said this morning um, by Mr. Liu, who said, and I quote, you did, uh, didn't charge the president because of the OLC opinion. That is not the correct way to say it, as we uh, say in the report. And as, as I said at the opening, we did not reach a determination as to whether the president committed a crime, end quote. Well, Mueller made it clear that he did not intend to support the implication that Mueller would have indicted Trump if not for the OLC opinion. Uh, And again, uh, we're talking about the Office of Legal Counsel. That would have meant that Mueller determined that Trump committed a crime but could not do anything about it. What Mueller meant was that the OLC opinion kept him from even deciding if an indictment would be warranted in the first place. And that may be as clear as mud to those who are not part of the legal community. But that was one important clarification that was um, made. Well, Democrats hoping for that hours of testimony by the former special counsel uh, might fuel their case for President Trump's impeachment were left with uh, little new material at the conclusion of Wednesday's back to back hearings as Republicans gloated that the spectacle failed to make the case to oust the president. It's time for the curtain to close on the Russia hoax. The conspiracy theory is dead. That's a quote from Representative Devin Nunez, top Republicans on the Intelligence Committee. Uh, agreed. Well, Mueller stood by his team's findings at the hearings today, reiterating that the special counsel's office found no evidence of a criminal conspiracy between Trump associates and Russia, while also stating that the president was not exonerated on allegations of obstruction of justice, despite his assertion to the contrary. Then he was confronted by Republicans with the allegation of a double standard on Russia and yet another suggesting that uh, the special counsel was not in the uh, uh, the business of exoneration. In fact, that was not something he had the charge to do, nor the authority or the um, the capacity to do. And there was a lot of back and forth on that. Uh, again, with regard to a double standard, congressional Republicans accused the former special counsel Robert Mueller on Wednesday of operating under that double standard in his investigation, alleging during a heated Hill hearing that Mueller threw the book at Trump associates while ignoring wrongdoing by others. Um, Anyway, they've been trying to draw a stark distinction between how the FBI and Mueller pursued allegations against President Trump and his campaign during the presidential election and how he uh, dealt with prominent Democratic figures and those associated with them. All in all, a lot of back and forth, not uh, much new, no new information, but it gave everyone an opportunity to make their point. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Steve Brown, Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable, right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, it can be difficult to be a Christian in today's culture. There are a lot of assumptions about what Christians do and don't believe, what we should and shouldn't do. Speaking up about issues related to faith can be intimidating. Well, in his new book, Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable, my next guest, Key Life Network founder Steve Brown, calls Christians to step out and speak up about what they know to be true 
but to do it in a comely way. He invites Christians to cultivate both the boldness and humility in communicating gospel truth by uncovering self-righteousness and spiritual arrogance. Uh, Talk the Walk shatters stereotypes and helps believers consider how they present the good news without watering it down and without offending by our approach. He writes that while we as Christians may be right on issues of salvation and theology, we may miss the less articulated truths of humility, love, and forgiveness. And by helping men and women love others out of a deeper love in Christ, the one who first loved us, regardless of our condition at the time, he helps Christians present the gospel clearly and with compassion. Oh, would that we would do that well. Well, Steve Brown is the founder of Key Life Network, Inc., the Bible teacher on the radio program Key Life and host of the talk show Steve Brown, etc. He was a pastor for more than 30 years and continues speaking extensively. He's authored numerous book, books, rather, including How to Talk So People Will Listen, Three Free Sins, Hidden Agendas, and his latest release, Talk the Walk. He's also written for publications such as Leadership, Decision, Plain Truth, and Today's Christian Woman. He previously served as a member of the Board of Directors of Christianity Today and Harvest USA. He and his wife um, have two married daughters, three granddaughters. They make their home in Orlando, Florida. But today he is ours by virtue of phone to talk about his latest book, Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable. Steve Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Georgine. Thanks for having me. I was having a conversation with one of my coworkers earlier today, and we were marveling at your dulcet tones and your beautiful voice. <laughs> I might get distracted. Georgine, just a I bit. just want you to know I'm good looking. Too. <laughs> we it, suspected as you much. You know, it's hard to just be a pretty voice. <laughs> Actually, God thought it was funny to put this voice in this uh, body, and I've never thought it was funny. But He said it was good for me. Yeah, so I guess it's okay. And it's good for the rest of us, so we're we're happy about. Well, let me ask you about our perception of where we stand as believers in the 21st century in America. There certainly has been a cultural shift toward dismissing a Christian worldview. And we, uh, many of us today, have never experienced this kind of uh, pressure uh, to walk our faith out in our culture. But how is that different than what Christians have experienced around the world from its, uh, its beginning? Well, certainly in this country, uh, we have moved into what scholars for a while called post-modernity. Mm-hmm. And um, that word is not uh, in in academic circles anymore. But we know there's been a cultural shift before we had power and money and political connections. I'm an old guy, so I can remember when they used to print pastor sermons on the front pages of the local local newspapers. But now, uh, if you've read the studies, there are a lot of nuns. Uh, you know that we don't have any power or leverage anymore. We don't have uh, the kind of PR we once had. And that's really bad. As a matter of fact, it's not. It's really good. Uh, We now have to do it Jesus' way, and uh, that's not a half-bad place to be. I teach my students that um, if they'll take off their ties and um, if they will be real, they can go down to the section in Orlando where people have purple hair and earrings and funny places and sit down. And if they'll listen, 
they will be heard for the first time in almost a century. Christians have a level playing field. Um, And so it's really good news. But in order for that level playing field to work, we've got to set aside some things that have been important to us, Hmm. like success and uh, leverage. Um, the way we've gotten our ways. I have a friend who wrote a book a couple of years ago called Minority Rules. And he, of course, was playing on the words. But we live in a... In fact, I don't know of any time in my lifetime where Christians can get a hearing more than right now. But as a matter of fact, we're doing it wrong. So... Mm. Is part uh, of the reason we keep doing it wrong? They're not going to listen. Yeah, is part of the reason we struggle because we we are not familiar with Jesus' way and we are doing it wrong. That's very true. That's very true. And we and and I, you know I I don't believe in any way that we should compromise our truth because it's revealed and we have to speak it. I wrote a chapter in the book called uh, Watered Down Wine, and there are a lot of people who change the truth in order to be accepted or alternatively won't speak the truth. And we don't dare do that because the issue is so important. Now, you write, and it's it's difficult to say out loud, but because it's true, I will. You write that some of the meanest, most condemning and arrogant people on the face of the earth are... Christians, um, and that we're missing out on uh, with regarding uh, to humility and love and forgiveness. How did we miss the mark? I mean, you've you've touched on this and what you've already said, but how is it that we've drifted drifted so far um, from having a gaining a hearing um, by the attitude and our approach? Because Georgine, uh, self righteousness is addictive, and not only is it addictive, it's the one sin that never names itself. And so if you're self-righteous, and we're right, by the way, Georgine, that's the most dangerous thing about being a Christian is that we're right. And if you're right, it's a very short step to move from that to righteousness, to self-righteousness. And we've started to assume that we're people's mother, that we've been called to change the world by winning the arguments. And, um, Georgine, it's just not true. Um, uh, If you ask the average person what they think about a Christian, it won't be very positive. And so it seems to me that the first thing that we have to do if we're going to witness and do it Jesus' way is to confess our sins. Hmm. We don't do that. We you know, we try to portray, we think that we must be perfect. And if we can't pull that off, it'll hurt our witness. Georgine, that's from the pit of hell. It's not biblical. It's not true. If you read the seventh chapter of uh, Romans, the apostle Paul gives the most amazing confession. In fact, when I first read it, I thought, I don't believe I would have said that. And he's very clear about his own sins. And there are those Bible scholars who say he's talking about the past. But the last time I checked, 
God could conjugate verbs. <laughs> and if it was supposed to be in the past, it'd be written in the past. Paul's talking about the ongoing reality of every believer. In fact, when we proclaimed that we were following Christ, we joined a club where the only requirement is not to be qualified. And, and we forget that sometimes. Martin Luther said, sanctification is getting used to your justification. And uh, we don't think that. We think sanctification is being better and better in every way, every day, so that the world will see how nice and wonderful and obedient we are and will want to be like us. They don't want to be like us. But if, and then I'm, you know, I'm rambling on, but Georgine, the most important response that a Christian can get to his or her witness is this. You, too, I never would have guessed. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. We're going to take a break here in a moment, but when we come back, I want to uh, invite you to talk about the phrase, speak the truth in love. Um, Uh, There are things that we misunderstand about love that results in not speaking the truth well. And I want to give you an opportunity to uh, to comment on that. So we'll be back in just a few moments. Again, we're talking about the book, Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable. Maybe more challenging than, than we realize because we don't realize we're insufferable. We'll be back with my guest in just a few moments, Steve Brown. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Steve Brown, his latest book, Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable. Now, many of us, most of us are familiar with the uh, scripture that says that we're to speak the truth in love. What is it that we get wrong? You've talked about um, hypocrisy, self-righteousness, but also humility and love. What is it that we get wrong uh, with this notion of speaking the truth in love? You can work up that if if you uh, really try, you can love people that you don't love very much. As a matter of fact, that's not true. Uh, Love doesn't... uh, isn't something you can manufacture or even that you can fake. Uh, Let me give you a principle. Well, let me tell you two things. First, um, love in response to goodness isn't love. It's reward. And the only way you can experience love is to be unlovable. Then the principle is this. You can't love until you've been loved, and then you can only love to the degree to which you have been loved. And um, what most Christians miss is the fact that we've been called to do nothing but allow Jesus to love us. And when he does that, then we have the ability to love other people insofar as we allow him to love us. I have a friend whose uh, business is billboards, and he became concerned a number of years ago with the divisions and the hatred and the war that was going on in Northern Ireland. And he wanted to do something, but he didn't know what to do. But since his business was billboards, he took out billboard advertising all over Northern Ireland. 
And by the way, I love that country. I was there not too long ago for some uh, meeting with a bunch of churches where I was teaching. And uh, you know what he put on those billboards? He put the simple message, I love you, is that okay, sign Jesus. Well, that sign was for pagans, of course, but it was also important for Christians. And once we realize that, listen, we're, we're unlovable people. We really are, Georgine. And uh, once we recognize that we're what the Bible says we are, and we run to Jesus because the law has convicted us, we get loved. And then an amazing thing happens, a whole attitude change in terms of our relationship with other people. And our witness, too. Our witness it becomes, I hate that word, authentic. It's being overused, mm-hmm. but I can't think of a better one. But we become real. Yeah. We, the best thing we can do in our world is confess our sins. Because we're nothing but beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. And we're not former beggars, either. We're needy, just like pagans. We're sinful. Uh, We are scared. We're lonely sometimes. We're marginalized sometimes. And once we're willing to take off our armor and to speak about the difference that Jesus makes, people will listen. I know that it's a challenge for us to make that admission that we know to be true, but we sometimes imagine that if we are that open about our neediness before God, that somehow we, we're not going to be heard. But the opposite is, in fact, true. If we acknowledge our need for Christ in the same way that the world needs him, then it seems that we're more approachable and less um, well self-righteous, to use the word, the phrase that we've been using. <laughs> it is so true. And, and, you know, it's always a surprise because we didn't expect it. Um, you know what, and I, you know, I'm into evidential apologetics and I like all that kind of stuff. But the main issue of apologetics is the problem of suffering. And I don't have all the answers for it, but I do know that for believers, when we go through bad stuff, uh, God is bringing us to the end of ourselves. And when we finally get to the end of ourselves, then maybe Jesus can use us as his witness in the world. Hmm. You write about some things that we should never do and um, how those things uh, get us into trouble. What should we as believers never do? (laughs) Georgina, I wrote this book a year and a half ago, and I don't remember what I said in that (laughs) chapter. But I know some things we should never do. We should never be arrogant. Uh, We should never pretend to be something we're not. We should be honest, never dishonest about our witness. Never change the truth in order to be accepted. Always speak the truth when God gives us an opportunity. Don't remain silent. You know, Satan's biggest trick is to get us to be be quiet. Mm -hmm. And the way he does it is we think nobody will listen, but they will. They will listen if we're willing to be 
like Jesus. No money, no power, no leverage, no manipulation. By the way, there's a there's a chapter in the book that's titled uh, "Nobody's Mother." You know, we've been we've been uh, thinking that. Every time locusts attack a third world country crop, we ask, what did we do wrong? (laughs) And we've taken on ourselves a job uh, that is only God's job. I, uh, I don't have to fix other people. That's not my responsibility. I can't even fix myself. Uh, And so, and so once I decide that I don't have to be somebody's mother, uh, then at that point I can be their friend. And that includes gays and lesbians and liars and, and gluttons and, and all kinds of people because those are the people that Jesus loves and we dare not um, avoid the people that Jesus himself loves. For such were some of us, and still are. <laughs> yeah, right. That's me. You know, we did a promotional video on this book, and they hired a fighting ring uh, with a lot of smoke, and I was standing in the middle of the fighting ring and uh, talked about how we're always fighting, and I'm always trying to tell people how good I am. And I'm phony, and since I'm an expert, I can speak to this issue. And so that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> what do you want your readers to to be the number one takeaway uh, from Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable? And I, I love the use of that word, by the way. And, um, I think the one thing I would take away is, I would want people to take away, is the importance of being like Jesus and not like our pastor. <laughs> hmm. You know, we I have taught more courses on evangelism than I can possibly say. And um and I repent because evangelism is showing. Georgine, everybody who's a Christian listening right now smells like Jesus and you can't help it. When Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, it wasn't a command. It was a fact. And so even if you're not walking it, you still smell like Jesus. And all you got to do is to be who you are, hang with him, and go where he goes, and you'll be absolutely blown away with what happens. Amen. Well, once again, the title of the book, Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable. I plan on reading it again, and I thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it. Georgine, thanks for having me. You're a delight. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Steve Brown. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll take a look at some of the events that have unfolded over the last 24 hours. And we'll talk with Douglas Estes, Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Tech. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to hear from Douglas Estes. He's the author of Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Tech. The two can coexist and do so quite well, it turns out. Uh, That's coming up in the uh, latter part of, uh, well, actually the next segment through the remainder of the uh, program. 
Well, the House of Representatives overwhelmingly approved a bipartisan resolution on Tuesday opposing an international effort to boycott Israel as Democrats try to tamp down increasing heat uh, over the political rhetoric over differences with the longtime U.S. ally. Well, the resolution passed on a vote of 398 to 17. Representative Ilhan Omar uh, Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were among the 16 Democrats who voted against the resolution. Representative Thomas Massey was the only Republican to vote no. Representative Justin Amash, uh, who is an independent, formerly a Republican, was one of the five lawmakers who voted present. Well, the resolution puts the House on record opposing the pro-Palestinian boycott, divestment and sanctions movement and its uh, its efforts to target U.S. companies that do business with Israel. The movement has grown in recent years and Israel sees it as a threat. Supporters of Israel view it as an attempt to delegitimize the Jewish state. Representative Brad Schneider, Jerry Nadler, Lee Zeldin and Ann Wagner had introduced the resolution in March. Again, this was a resolution opposing the boycott of Israel. Uh, wrote um, the resolution, rather, said a two-state solution remains the best way to justly resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and ensure a future for two people living side by side in peace, security and prosperity. By denying the Jewish claim to a homeland, the BDS movement is fundamentally incompatible with the two-state solution and pushes the cause of peace for both Israel and the Palestinians further out of reach. This resolution makes clear that Congress remains committed to a two-state solution and opposes zero-sum efforts to delegitimize the state of Israel. We must reject the blatant anti-Semitics injected throughout BDS, uh, Zeldin went on to say. Well, the Associated Press reported that the House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer, had promised lawmakers the bill would come up for a vote before the August recess in a bid to shield House Democrats from continued Republican efforts to attack them around the issue of Israel. Lawmakers on the left side of the ledger, most notably Omar Tlaib, uh, and Tlaib, I should say, both newly elected Muslim Americans have spoken out in support of the BDS movement as they criticize Israel's treatment of Palestinians. Omar, as a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, was among the only lawmakers to voice objection when the bill was uh, included in a package the panel approved last week. What we're doing is... Um, uh, what are we doing, rather, to bring peace, she asked at the time. Omar has been outspoken against Israel as well, once tweeting that lawmakers were supportive of the Jewish state because they were essentially being paid to do so. It was widely considered a slur that relied on a trope against Jewish people, and she later unequivocally apologized. Well, President Trump called her apology lame, and Republicans have continued to stoke opposition to her views as part of the squad of liberal freshman lawmakers. The president stood by last week at a campaign rally as the crowd chanted, um, uh, which he later said he objected about sending her back, being the only uh, member of the four who came originally uh, from outside the United States to become a U.S. citizen. Well, a federal judge decided on Wednesday to leave in place a Trump administration rule that imposes restrictions on individuals who are seeking asylum here in the United States if they pass through a third country on their way to the border between the U.S. and Mexico, potentially leading to a sharp reduction in Central American migrants entering the country. Now, the rule published in the Federal Reserve last week requires people seeking asylum to first apply in one of the countries they pass through on their way to the U.S. with certain uh, exceptions. 
Now, the rule was uh, met with a legal challenge from advocacy groups who moved for a temporary restraining order blocking the rule. Well, after a hearing in Washington federal court, District Judge Timothy J. Kelly denied that motion. The rule will remain in place for the duration of the case unless the decision is successfully appealed. We're disappointed in the court's decision, said Claudia Kubas, who is a litigation director for the Capital Area Immigrants Rights Coalition. Kelly, who was appointed to the bench by President Trump, said the immigration advocacy group who um, filed a lawsuit did not show that their work would be irreparably harmed if the policy moved forward. Well, with certain exceptions, the rule requires individuals to apply for and be denied asylum in another country in order to apply in the U.S. That means that immigrants from Central American nations would travel through Mexico, uh, who make up a significant portion of the recent asylum seekers, will not be eligible for asylum in America unless they previously applied for asylum in Mexico or any other country they traversed. And... Uh, were turned down. Now, the new rule's exceptions include certain cases of human trafficking. The rule is meant to crack down on asylum seekers coming to the United States more for economic reasons than for escape, pers- uh, rather than to escape persecution in their home countries. Administration officials say this could help close the gap between the initial asylum screening that most people pass and the final decision on asylum that most people do not win. The goal is a part uh, to allow quicker determinations in those cases and hopefully uh, reduce something of the backlog. Well, on Tuesday, the Justice Department announced that it's opening an antitrust probe into America's biggest tech companies. Assistant Attorney General Macon Dalraman, um, who heads the DOJ's antitrust division, explained that the broad and sweeping investigation would seek to determine whether tech giants have engaged in monopolistic practices that have reduced competition, stifled innovation, or otherwise harmed consumers. Well, this latest Department of Justice probe is now the second investigation launched by the government into big tech, as the Federal Trade Commission is currently conducting a smaller investigation into potential abuses by Facebook and Amazon. Well, back in January, Attorney General William Barr expressed concerns over big tech's rapid growth when he told lawmakers, I don't think big is necessarily bad, but I think a lot of people wonder how such huge behemoths that now exist in Silicon Valley have taken shape under the nose of the antitrust enforcers. You can win that place in the marketplace without violating the antitrust laws, but I want to find out more about that dynamic. It now appears that Barr is seeking to answer these questions. And conservative watchdog group Judicial Watch filed a complaint with the House of Representatives Ethics Office asking for an investigation into possible crimes committed by Minnesota Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar. Now, the possible crimes include perjury, immigration fraud, marriage fraud, state and federal tax fraud and federal student loan fraud, according to the complaint filed Tuesday by Judicial Watch's Tom Fitton. The House of Representatives must urgently investigate and resolve the serious allegations of wrongdoing by Representative Omar, Fitton said. Substantial, compelling and to date unrefuted evidence supports the allegation He said, well, the evidence developed against Representative Omar was the result of a three-year-long investigation in both the United States and the United Kingdom by Mr. Steinberg and his investigative reporter colleagues, Preya uh, Samsunder and Scott Johansson. It is uh, supported by information gathered from public records, social media postings, genealogy database, computer forensic analysis, unaltered digital photographs, discussions between the investigative reporters and the subjects of the investigations themselves, and information supplied by confidential sources within the Somali-American community. Documented... um, 
based reporting by Steinberg at uh, all has uh, developed a The following information, Representative Ilhan Omar, a citizen of the United States, married her biological brother, Ahmed Nur Saeed Elmi, a citizen of the United Kingdom in 2009, presumably as part of an immigration fraud scheme. The couple legally divorced in 2017, Fitton wrote. Omar gave birth to children fathered by another man, Ahmed Hirsi, both before and during her marriage to Elmi. Legal documents such as uh, speeding tickets demonstrate that she lived uh, with Hirsi during the entirety of her marriage to Elmi. Omar requested a default divorce from Elmi in 2017, an unusual proceeding used where one spouse has disappeared and cannot be located. To obtain a divorce, she filed papers with the Minnesota District Court swearing under penalty of perjury that she last saw him in 2011 and had no clues about how he how to contact him uh, through other people. She swore that she didn't know the name of a single member of her husband's family and that they uh, didn't have any friends or acquaintances in common who might know how to locate him, according to papers she filed with the Minnesota District Court to secure a divorce. She swore she tried to locate him through social media but could not, even though he had public profiles on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Screenshots additionally show Omar continuously interacting with him on social media in the years since. The evidence developed by Mr. Steinberg and his colleagues demonstrates with a high degree of certainty that Ms. Omar not only had contact with uh, Mr. um, Elmi, but actually met up with him in London in 2015, which is supported by photographic evidence, Judicial Watch's complaint says. Now, whether or not it will be deemed that... Um, Mr. Fitton has standing for this to move forward remains to be seen, but there have been questions swirling around her background for many, uh, many years preceding her election to Congress and certainly following. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments with Douglas Estes, author of Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Tech. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. My next guest points out that technology is changing around us at a blistering pace. We're entering an era in which human bodies merge with devices. Corporations know everything about us and artificial intelligence develops humans and even godlike potential. Douglas Estes equips Christians to thoughtfully and prayerfully prepare for a future of rapidly changing technology. In his latest book, Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Technology. Tech is coming so fast now that we can only imagine what it will bring. Well, in the book, he samples eight key technologies that will shape our future. He draws on scripture, Christian tradition, and a deep appreciation for science. He offers believers a grounded response to these rapid changes, and he also responds to transhumanism, the new philosophy emerging from Silicon Valley that promotes radical life extension through technology. With thoughtful questions and suggestions, he helps readers choose trust in God over fearful retreat and following Jesus over uncritical engagement with technology. Douglas Estes is Associate Professor of New Testament and Practical Theology and Director of the um, MDiv program at South University, Columbia. He has pastored several churches and is the author of many books focusing on the intersection of text, church, and world. He is a regular contributor to the science section of Christianity Today and is the editor of Faith Life's Didactos, a journal of theological education. And I am delighted to welcome Douglas Estes to us, to our listening audience here today. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Yes, great to be here today. I confided in my listeners uh, earlier that I had uh, actually had a, a, a different guest scheduled for today, and that guest had food poisoning. And when I learned that you were available, this, this was a book I wanted to, to talk with you about. I was uh, thrilled. Uh, but I didn't have a chance to read the entire book. But I was pleasantly surprised by the approach that you've taken on this subject. It's much uh, deeper and I think more relevant than I had anticipated. So I, first of all, congratulations on the book, and I appreciate so much your stepping in today. Sure, that's great. Happy to do it. Um, you um, start out in the introduction of the book, helping to give us some perspective of uh, looking back. We tend to look forward, but looking back on the lives of our grandparents and great grandparents and the issues that dominated their thinking and the way they viewed the world, not so much looking forward with optimism toward the future, but looking back with some trepidation based on the challenges they faced and how different life is here in the West for us today. Can you give our listeners just a little perspective on that? Sure. I think that when we talk about technology, it's very tempting to look at technology as it exists today with the challenges that we face today, like social media and the smartphone and, you know, how young should we let our children use an iPad at what age? Um, yet at the same time, every generation um, since the beginning has struggled with the use of technology. It happens to be coming faster today than it has been in the past, but we've always struggled with technology. Society has always created new uh, forms and tool, uh, tools, new things that we can use and we can do, and so we're always questioning how do we use it, how do we approach this technology effectively, and we want to be able to bring it back to what God's Word says and our relationship with God so that we can understand how to use technology well. One of the things you point out that I think if we give it some thought would have to agree is that technology is moving so quickly, we can't even really anticipate what's uh, to come ahead. And this is not a book that uh, that suggests that we should not be engaged in technology, but you uh, are attempting to help us think more carefully, not only the practical aspects of the use of technology, but the philosophical questions that should accompany our understanding of its impact on the way we live and, and its use and our perspective on who God is and who we are as uh, the scripture defines us. Yes, that's exactly right. One of the challenges that we do face in our world today in the 21st century uh, is that technology is coming at us faster than it ever has been. And it almost seems like technology is on an exponential curve upward. Yet at the same time, we as Christians must engage technology. We must understand it. We must discuss it. We must figure out how to use it. And I think that the sad thing is, is that if we look back over the history of the last 100 years, Christians have been slower and slower to engage questions around technology. It doesn't mean that they haven't adopted it or used it, but we've been slow to, to really engage it in the same way that our forefathers did. You know, if you go back to uh, the printing press, the roads, all the other technological advances that came through, you know, Christians sometimes were the first to, to grab hold of these uh, and to use them, especially for the proclamation of the gospel, encouraging people uh, around their world in their communities. And yet in the last hundred years, we've been slower to do that. And I'd like to see us quicken the pace get a sense of what these technologies are, and begin to discuss them in our churches and in our homes. One of the reasons for that is the fact that technology, as it will emerge into the future, is that it's going to have much more profound impact uh, on our understanding, our, our worldview, our view of God, uh, and, and uh, its meaning than previous generations could ever have imagined. 
Yes, although there's a but there. And the but, I would say, is if you look at, for example, radio versus television. Mm-hmm. Um, in a very simple example here, Christians were relatively quick to embrace radio, but they were much slower to embrace television. And, I, you know, one of the things we don't want to see happen as new technologies arrive is Christians be reticent to engage because they feel that in some way these things don't don't correspond with their faith or that maybe this is, you know, a sign of the end times or maybe this is, you know, God's plan for them. But as humanity increases until God comes back, you know, God has a plan for each of us to go into our communities, to share the gospel, to engage people. And the, the way that one of the main ways that we're going to be able to do that is through tools, which is technology in a sense. You write that the question at the heart of this book, are how do we handle rapid technological change? How do we evaluate new tech in light of what the Bible teaches and what Jesus models for us? And how do we discern the best use of technology that has not yet even arrived? How do we remain faithful to God during a technological turning point in history? One of the the things that you address first off is the fact that many people of faith um, are thought to be against science or technology um, but that that's not necessarily the case. Yes, I don't find that to be true. I think that Christians sometimes get a you know get depicted in the media as being against technology or you know kind of ludite you know in their approach. Mm-hmm. But I don't really find that to be the case. I mean, most Christians use technology and use technology to the same degree that anyone else does. But I think that the challenge sometimes comes in is that we are a little bit uh, hesitant sometimes when it comes to figuring out how to approach it. Like, we don't want to talk about it. And and it's interesting in a way because sometimes pastors or other ministry leaders or Christian leaders, they'll, will be talking or they'll, you know, text me or email me or something about technology. And it's interesting because we, we get sort of myopic sometimes about various technology. Instead, if you look back in scripture, Scripture doesn't actually really seem to to critique technology at all. Um, People use technology. You know, there's no sermon uh, by Paul, you know, to the church in Corinth or somewhere about using technology or not using technology. Um, They they used it. They, They used it in the way that they felt like could glorify God. And so for us, we want to be critically thinking about it without being myopic or without overly focusing on things that are the negative, but asking the question, how can we use these tools these wonderful tools that, you know, human society has produced, how do we use these wonderful tools to glorify God in our lives and our community? At the same time, you write that many people of faith question some of the underlying ideas that are often promoted along with scientific achievement and technological advancement. When these ideas and their objections collide, popular culture can make it appear that Christians object to the science or the technology when, in fact, it's the underlying uh, ideas connected with them. Yes, that's right. I mean, this has been a perennial problem uh, since the dawn of time where there are things in society, such as technology, there's other examples, but there's things in society where the technology is in and of itself, like it's, it's, it's it, what's it, but then comes along with it a philosophy or an idea. And the problem that comes in is a lot of times either Christians are painted as being for or against the technology when it's really the philosophy that they're for or against, or sometimes it's just assumed that you will, you know, that you will agree with the philosophy even if you don't agree with the technology. I mean, let me see if I can give an example. Yeah. One time I was in um, the supermarket and I saw a child that was about three years old have their own iPad watching movies while the mom was all the way down the aisle 
picking out some, some food. And I thought it was very strange that the child was completely alone with only their iPad watching their movie, total glee on their face, you know. And I just thought, the thing is, is that there's the technology. The iPad is, is a wonderful instrument. But yet at the same time, the philosophy of our culture sometimes says, just use it with, with abandon. But the problem is, is that what we as Christians need to critique is the philosophy, which is, you know, do whatever you want, do whatever feels good. Not, and just being simple here for a second, not critique the technology itself. With every tool, with every bit of technology, there's going to be a good way to use it and a bad way to use it. And in most cases, the critique comes in the philosophy that comes along with it rather than the technology itself. In fact, uh, you point out that one of the difficulties with discussing technology lies in the divide between the practical and the philosophical. And your book really focuses on some of the philosophical questions that will inform our understanding and use of technology as we anticipate it in the future uh, so that it it, it uh, does not have the capacity to change our understanding and view of God, for example, uh, we recognize the role that culture plays in introducing the technology and all of the things that are attendant to it. Yes, and I think that uh, one of the things that happens a lot is that we don't really know how to discuss technology sometimes. I like to joke, and I sort of started this joke earlier in the conversation, but I like to joke that you know sometimes ministry leaders, they'll text me or tweet me or email me. I don't really agree with you know all the uses of technology <laughs> in our culture, but it's ironic because they're doing it over text or over tweet mm-hmm. or, you know, over email. And, and the most important thing to me is, is that as we are figuring out how to use technology is that there, there is still, it still needs to come back to who God is. And, and that's what I do in my book is that as I talk about all these technologies, I talk about how the, the use of those technologies and the philosophy that comes with them can intersect and sometimes uh, damage the way people view God. And so I look at, you know, like you mentioned, I look at eight technologies. I also look at eight different um, views of the way that we understand who God is. You know, he's omnipresent. He's omniscient. You know, these kind of things that we think about as the character of God. And the character of God is the rock. It's the unchanging thing Mm -hmm. about who he is. And that is what we want to base everything on. So if culture changes, um, if technology changes, God is unchanging, and so we always want to come back to that rock, even in the midst of of rapid change. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Douglas Estes. He's an associate professor of New Testament. We're talking about his book, Braving the Future. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Technology. Now, just before the break, you made the point that in the book, you look at eight key technologies that are going to shape our future. And it's pretty ominous when you think about these technologies and how they might develop. But let's talk about what these eight are, and then maybe we'll have time to look at a couple of them. Sure. Well, just as a list, uh, the ones I talk about are virtual reality, autonomous machines, gene editing, artificial intelligence, brain-computer interfaces, intelligent robots, nanotechnology, and cybernetics. And so some of those things sound kind of sci-fi, but they're the eight that I felt like were the most likely to come in the next 50, 100 years and have the biggest impact on human society. And that would make us question things about how we navigate in this world, who God is, these kind of questions that are of most importance. Yeah, and in fact, you list them in the, the order that you think they're most likely to emerge as technologies that we will 
um, be confronted with. Uh, you talk about the fact that there is a view that natives of the early 20th century were people 1.0, uh, but the 22nd century, everyone's going to get a full upgrade uh, to people 2.0 hardware, that there's going to be sort of an interface between who we are as people and the technology that we merge in ways that, again, sounds like sci-fi, um, but is very likely to be um, part of what we uh, will confront at some point in the future. How likely is it, do you think, that not just the technology is going to take us to that level, but that the philosophy around it uh, that has a direct um, implication to our a Christian worldview is uh, going to dominate the culture? Oh, well, I think that the, in the latter half of your question, the, the, cult, the cultural issue will be huge because culture has always had a, a predominant philosophy that drives it. And so if you go back a couple hundred years ago, you have humanism, you have romanticism, you have all kinds of isms you know, that dominate culture. And so every generation, at least as far back as we can track, has had these philosophies that are in uh, basically direct conflict or uh, at least uh, competition with Christianity. And, and so you're definitely going to have that. And so whether it be transhumanism or some ism beyond that, uh, every time the world changes and we enter into a new era or a new phase, there's going to be those. But, and this is what I would say, even though we don't know to all the degree to what that's going to look like, the thing that Christians do not need to worry about is they do not need to worry about the fact that God does not change. And so every generation has to figure out, okay, what is the ism, you know, whether it be humanism or transhumanism or whatever the ism is that's driving culture right now, bring it back to Scripture, bring it back to prayer, bring it back to who God is, um, and it is resolvable. It is solvable. Well, I appreciate your mentioning that because— uh, we need to be reminded that God is not wringing his hands, surprised at just how far we've come and the technology we're developing. And how is he going to relate to his people <laughs> under these circumstances? Um, you're right. God does not change and we can uh, we can trust him. But there, the challenge for us is to uh, view the world, ourselves and God in light of this technology in a way that is consistent with a biblical worldview that has been shared by every generation before us and into the future. That's right. And in fact, I was when you were talking, I was reminded of an article that A.W. Tozer wrote in Christianity Today about 60 years ago. And in it, he tells people that with the dawn of the space age, that they really don't have a reason to fear. And the reason why they don't have a reason to fear is because it's very popular. Remember, this was 60 years ago. It's very popular for people to pull out their microscopes, and that's the word he used, to try to examine the signs of the times. But we don't want to, that's the wrong tool. We want to use telescopes because when the prophets were looking ahead at mm. Jesus coming into our world, they didn't use microscopes to look at their day-to-day -day culture. They used a telescope to look forward to what God was going to do. Likewise, the early apostles, they knew that God had it in control. And they were using telescopes looking forward to what God was going to do through the ages and eventually wrap everything up, as Revelation talks about. And so we need to get behind that telescope mentality, not the microscope mentality. Oh, I love that analogy. Let's just look at one of these technologies that's likely to emerge before some of the others, and that's virtual reality. We're already seeing that um, to some degree, but your chapter on virtual reality and the addiction to tech, walk us through that, how um, we should, as followers of Christ, uh, understand it, approach it, and, and live with it, if you will. 
Well, virtual reality is probably one of the first ones that we will encounter. I think all of these eight technologies are already here to some degree. Uh-huh. It's the issue of being invented versus mass uh, mass consumption of it. But virtual reality is one of the ones that mass consumption is, is rapidly coming. And a big part of that is that it is one of those technologies that can be escapist. Um, and so I talk about how even though we have escapist uh, opportunities with virtual reality, that we want to keep making sure that we are using this technology in a way that, you know, we can use it from time to time, but we're using it in a way ultimately that fits in with a biblical lifestyle. So Mm -hmm. it's just like any other communication type technology, whether it be radio or whether it be TV or whether it be internet or virtual reality. These are all similar technologies, similar tools, simpler similar forms of communication that are on a are basically on a line or a curve, if you will. And so they, they are more impactful in their ability to communicate yet at the same and also frankly to be addictive. But at the same time that they, they're not that different. We turn off the radio, we turn off the TV, we turn off uh, the internet, we turn off virtual reality. Of course, someone listening may say, but it's harder. <laughs> yes, it is, because it's more fat, more powerful technology. It's a more powerful form of communication. It's one thing to communicate by AM radio. It's a whole other thing to communicate uh, by virtual reality. But at the same time, when we think about the ways that we can use it constructively, and like the example I give um, in the book is that as a professor, You know, there are times when I want to try to help students visualize what it was like to live in the ancient world so they can get a sense of when, you know, when Paul is arguing these things. You know, Paul is not writing this as a scholar in a modern university setting. He's out in the open, you know, down in the Agora, and he's talking to people, and he's preaching these things. And then later, you know, he's he's got these ideas that are, he's preached over and over again, these rhetorical ideas, and he's putting them down. Well, I I can say what I just said over the radio, and maybe a listener or two will kind of get a visual in their mind, but if I could bring all of your audience onto a virtual reality playing field and be able to present visually what it was like for Paul to do that, well, that's way, way more powerful. The lesson is that much more meaningful. Um, and so there are, with any technology, there are going to be good and bad uses of it. And as Christians, we want to be at the forefront of using technology well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the other technologies that I think may bring with it the, the, the potential for fear is the brain-computer interface. There's a fear that uh, this kind of interface might make it uh, possible for uh, control of an individual contrary to their conscience or, or their will. Can you talk a little bit about brain-computer interfaces and what that technology might bring and how we might think about it? Yes. The brain-computer interface is a technology that encompasses a lot of sub-technologies, okay? But, but to make it simple, there's basically two aspects of it. There is, first of all, the, the communication between a human and a computer, okay? And then also a computer integrating um, back with a human, okay? So mostly what we're looking at right now is the first one, is the human integrating with the computer. And so again, it, it can seem to be a little bit scary in some ways, but all of these technologies are to a large extent on a continuum where they've already started and they're just getting better and better and better. So. When you look at like the internet, uh, if you go back to the 19, early 1990s and the internet seemed like, okay, it could be cool, but like, are people really going to do much with this? I mean, I remember, you know, when having those kind of conversations. 
Um, and yet now the internet has quote unquote taken over our whole life. Okay. So right now, um, and I use the example in my book, my grandparents, especially my great grandparents, I know nothing of them. Nothing has survived to them. There, there's nothing. There, there's no interface with any type of technology. But at this point in my life, my great-grandchildren will not be able to say the same thing. They will be able to know everything about my life if, assuming my you know, computer records uh, you know, persevere until that time and my kids just don't throw them away. But probably they won't. And so they'll know a great deal about me. And that's because my, my life has already interfaced with a computer today. That brain-computer interface that's coming, it's just going to take that to the next level, just like the 90s Internet to the Internet today. Instead of me having to write out a letter, Dear Great-Grandchildren, if you're reading this letter, I really hope that you will follow Jesus in your life, right? I have that letter, okay? And so and the difference will be is that my, my memories, all that I've done, maybe sermons, lectures that I've given, these sorts of things will be interfaced with a computer, and they will be there and visible if it works out, if the technology works out. They will be there and visible for my great-grandkids to be able to see. It will be a more powerful testimony than writing it down. Yeah, I've yeah. been told that I had a great-grand-something uh, or other who was a minister, but I don't know. I, I have no way of knowing um, because they didn't preserve any of those records. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, when people wonder if events like the State Department's ministerial work, the evidence is sitting right in front of them. This time last year, Pastor Andrew Brunson was locked away under house arrest in Turkey, his fate completely uncertain. In fact, one of the most enduring memories of last July's gathering was his daughter, Jacqueline, making an emotional plea for his release. You probably remember the case, if not her testimony. Well, 12 months later, it was Brunson speaking in front of that very crowd, living proof that this administration's commitment to religious freedom does, in fact, matter. Brunson said, speaking at the recently concluded ministerial conference, for me to be back with my wife and my children, still in awe, this is what I wanted. It's wonderful, he smiled, that I can be here in person and I'm free and I'm very grateful for that, end quote. So are the millions of people just like him who take Brunson's freedom as a sign that the United States will fight for them, too. Well, in his speech on Thursday, Vice President Mike Pence credited God's great kindness in bringing Brunson home, but... I can personally attest from my involvement in Brunson's release that the vice president was so right to say that it took a leader like President Donald Trump to carry out the work. So says Tony Perkins, who was also at the event. Pastor Brunson's story of uh, perseverance in the face of incredible hardship was an inspiration to people across our country and believers around the world, the vice president insisted. And we express our admiration for him and to him from the bottom of our hearts for being an example of faith that is like gold tested in fire. Well, as the world knows from watching the last few days, Brunson isn't the only one with a powerful testimony. All week long, one survivor after another pulled at the heartstrings of attendees with agonizing stories that the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Ambassador Sam Brownback are determined no one on their watch will repeat. Well, as the Secretary said on uh, uh, earlier this week, we don't want this event to be a one-off where we all congratulate ourselves for having a good week here in Washington. That uh, is about permanent, lasting change. That's what this event was about. Representative Chris Smith, who spent years as a lonely voice in the wilderness for these millions of hurting people, 
uh, knows how important the moment is, saying this is a game changer. No one can listen to these victims who suffer unimaginable horrors and go home unaffected. They will go back, he predicted, energized as never before to promote this first freedom. And that matters because, as so many leaders have reiterated throughout the week, if they do get this right, so many other aspects of their country in terms of due process of law, other human rights are usually not far behind. Uh, this is the uh, this is the uh, one that makes all the difference in the world, referring to religious freedom. And based on what the vice president shared, it already is. Since the 2018 ministerial, the Genocide Recovery and Persecution Response Program, uh, helping the people of um, like Nadia Murad and so many others has donated something like $340 million in aid to religious minorities persecuted by ISIS in the Iraqi region. The vice president also shared that the State Department also has more than $5 million in pledges for the International Freedom Fund that's given 435 rapid response grants to people undergoing intense persecution. But there are also new developments, significant ones for the 106 countries represented in Washington. Washington this past week. To cap off the last day of the ministerial, uh, Vice President, or I should say Secretary Pompeo, announced a new international religious freedom alliance that's going to help give American partners a way to uh, circumvent the bad actors at the UN and confront major challenges and enemies of the faith. As he explained, the alliance is going to focus on new sanctions against foreign military officials supporting countries the U.S. considers to be instigators of religious persecution, which interestingly enough set the stage for America to dole out some stiff punishments of its own. To prove how serious U.S. officials are on the issue, Secretary Pompeo rolled out brand new sanctions on some of Myanmar's top military officials for their growth abuse of the Rohingya Muslims. Uh, Religious freedom activists have been begging for targeted sanctions against the individuals responsible for persecution like this, and it rarely happens. So for the Trump administration to make a point of holding this general and his three senior uh, officers accountable is proof of how serious this is being uh, seriously this is being taken now and how serious this effort is. Also in Iraq, where women like Murad bravely crusade for the thousands of girls sold into sex slavery, the U.S. has just handed down equally stiff punishments for two Iraqi mil- uh, militia leaders and two former Iraqi governors for human rights abuses. In its statement, the U.S. Treasury Department pointed to a video that's been circulated since 2018 of an Iraqi military officer cutting off off the ear of a handcuffed detainee. Uh, that's on top of crimes like extortion, robbery, kidnapping, rape, and harassment. The United States, the vice president warned, will not stand by while violent regimes spread terror. Uh, we will hold them accountable, and that, thanks to last week's ministerial, is accelerating. So this is encouraging news following the completion of this uh, ministerial, the the second to be held and the largest of its kind in the United States that featured uh, people from all uh, attendees from all around the world and testimonies from people from all around the world as well, who are the subjects of persecution, not all Christian, but all the subject of religious persecution. So it is a um, an encouraging development that this is being taken seriously. Well, I wanted to remind you that tomorrow on the program, we are going to um, invite Holt International. They are uplifting children and strengthening families into KPDQ studio for the entire day. And we are 
uh, giving you an opportunity to learn more about the work that they do and also to help provide schooling for uh, children that they are focused on this time around. Now, Holt International is the response of a uh, an individual's Christian faith, seeking a world where every child has the support and resources to reach their full potential and a world where every child has a loving and secure home. It was established back in 1956, and they've worked toward that uh, vision uh, ever since. They always focus on each child's unique needs. It's not a cookie-cutter program, keeping the child's best interest and God-given potential at the forefront of every decision that they make. And we're going to have the opportunity uh, to raise support in their efforts to do just that. Now, on the outskirts of uh, Mongolia is a city dump where hundreds of children are growing up in garbage. This is a scenario we've seen played out in other parts of the world as well. There are hundreds of children uh, who live just outside the garbage dump in this same area of uh, Uh, Mongolia. They go to the dump every day. They sift through the garbage to find food or to scavenge for anything of value uh, to sell. And that scavenging continues 365 days a year. Uh, It continues even through the Mongolian winter when the temperatures consistently drop to minus 30 degrees. Now, these children are too busy surviving to go to school. Many can't even sign their name. But Holt International supports a school for these children where they uh, learn to read, to write, to escape their life in the garbage. And we're inviting you to consider giving a gift that will help to provide that access to education for these children so that uh, they and their families can be lifted out of poverty. And it's a long-term solution. So that will be our focus uh, tomorrow on the program. And then on Friday, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news, as we so often want to do on Fridays. And uh, we'll certainly cover any breaking news and some of the headlines. But we will spend the bulk of our time and focus on the lighter side of the news. And James Bend, being back from his vacation, will join me in studio as well. Speaking of whom, James Blend is the producer of today's program, Clark Hilton Engineer. And I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope to join you. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.